All right, Landry.audio, follow, like, and subscribe. Today we have Michael Schiavello, the award-winning international television presenter and sports commentator who has worked for a range of professional fight organizations, including K1, which I'm most uh, recognizable or notable with, and now with one championship. He's here to promote his new book, Goodnight Irene, and share some tales from the fight game. He joins us from his home in Melbourne, Australia. How are we going, mate? Cheers, doing well, mate. How are you? Great to have me on the show. Thank you very much for, for having me on. No worries. Thank you for joining us. As, as I was saying, um, we always have a little bit of pre-banter. It's, it's always difficult when you're doing these conversations remotely because I'm sure, as you would know, prior to doing an interview with someone in person, you get to sort of – the anyone sort of in sales is knowing that is being able to break down that barrier for a few minutes of that sort of um, awkwardness that initially starts. But because we do these all remotely, that can – be hard to do at some point in time but we were just um having a brief chat and talking about the difference it looks like we're at the moment into the second wave of coronavirus and it's smashing you guys down in melbourne where you're all prisoners effectively at the moment yeah it's a little it's a little difficult um you know interrupting lifestyle more than anything i suppose but uh it's one of those things you've got to get through and i guess the whole world is is going through it um some more repercussions than others uh, but you know we, we, we're in lockdown at the moment but um means we get to spend a lot more time at home with our families and uh try to adapt and uh, see how we come out the other end cool uh so we've got about an, an hour and a bit hour and a half to, to speak with you today uh my personal interest i didn't even know that the book was coming out when we initially reached out to you uh i recognize your commenting as we were talking about when i first moved over here in late 2004 you were commentating a lot of the content on fox sports uh, you were running blitz magazine and then i started hearing your voice becoming pretty ubiquitous with the English commentary that went with K1, which a lot of um, old school fans will notice. And I got a little bit of representation with my K1 and Pride activity in the back behind me, as, as do you. So um, just want to recount some, some of the, I guess, that glory period that, that we all know from, from that time period with um, guys like Peter Ertz. Uh, your book goes into the battles between Mark Hunt and Ray Seffo, and I think we can, we can agree that I think that first round showdown will probably go down as one, one of the great fights of all time so we've got a lot to play around with but for uh for people who don't know who you are why don't we just briefly explain why don't you why don't you tell us who you've commentated for and sort of how you got into the game and i've been around for a long time you know i think back now jesse to uh how long and i began commentating fight sports in 1994 um, you, you know originally i never wanted to commentate fight sports i i, I was a, i was a soccer guy a football guy um, editor of Soccer International magazine, and I'd worked on radio when I was younger, doing soccer reports and commentating soccer, etc. And um, it turned out that a, a local kickboxing promoter in Melbourne had heard me commentate soccer on the then 3AK radio, and he rang me one day and he said, "Listen, I'd, I'd like you to commentate my uh, my kickboxing show." And his name was Paul Dimacoli. And I said, "Paul, I've got no idea about commentating kickboxing. I'm, I'm a soccer guy. I'll, I'll commentate soccer." He goes, oh, "I think you'd be really good at." you know, commentating uh, on kickboxing, give it a shot. I, I, I pushed and I pushed and I pushed back against him saying, Paul, I don't think I'd be good at it. Um, I don't want to commentate kickboxing. Eventually, he twisted my arm and convinced me. And so I headed out one Saturday night to the Sunshine Police Youth Centre, um, Macedonian Centre in Melbourne's western suburbs. There were all of 150 people there. It was some local title fight between a guy named... Pat Christoffi and another guy whose name I've forgotten. And it was me commentating with a guy called Tony Shebeki. And Shebeki would go on a year later to become the voice of Gladiators, the TV show Gladiators on Channel 7. And um, I really had no idea what I was doing, but 
I, 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 as soon as the green light went on and I put the headphones and the microphone on, I just got transported into another world and I, I felt it. I just knew that fight sports commentary was what I was made for. And from them, things just progressed. And in 96, I think it was, uh, Foxtel came to Australia. So Pay TV came to Australia. And they'd heard me do some local kickboxing commentary. And they said, hey, do you want to commentate for us? Uh, so I began commentating for Fox Sports. And that snowballed to Sky TV in New Zealand, hearing me and saying, hey, do you want to commentate K1 for us? And by the year 2000, uh, 2001, I was in um, Japan for the first time commentating K1 during, as you said, that glory, you know, golden era of so many great fighters. And one thing just led to another. From K1, it became Dream and, and Dynamite and Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games and then moving to the USA in 2011 to commentate on Access TV, then relocating back to Australia in 2017 and starting work for one championship. So, you know, one thing has sort of led to, to another in a, in a very long commentating career so far. What are, a lot of people will recognize your voice, but I'm part of the profession. Do you want to just describe the difference between sort of doing color commentary and play-by-play -play and how you fit into that scheme? Yeah, so usually in a, in a sports commentary booth, uh, you've got two or three commentators. I always like a two-commentator booth. You've got a play-by-play -play and a color. Now, play-by-play -play is someone like myself. We call the action. We tell you what is happening. The color guy comments on the action. He tells you why and how it's happening. So let's put it for, let's say for football, AFL football, maybe familiar to a lot of your, a lot of your listeners and viewers. Yeah. So a guy like Dennis Cometti or Bruce McAvaney is a play-by-play -play commentator. So they tell you where the ball is, who's kicking the ball, which direction it's moving in, etc. And then a guy like, let's say, Gary Lyon, or, um, you know, uh, it might be um, Revolt. Those are the guys that are colour guys. They'll tell you how the ball's moving, why the ball's moving, what the team's strategy is. If you're familiar with, let's say, UFC, you know, um, the classic Mike Goldberg, Joe Rogan commentary. Mike Goldberg was play-by-play. Joe Rogan breaks it down his color. So my role has always been as a play-by-play -play guy. I think once or twice I was asked to do some color commentary and it pretty much reverted into me ending up doing play-by-play -play duties anyway. But there is a distinction and, and I think there needs to be a distinction in commentary because a lot of times play-by-play -play guys will try to do color. Color guys will do play-by-play -play and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, if you've got a three-man booth, you know, again, I've worked plenty of three-man booths. I've worked four-man booths. But there should always be one play-by-play -play guy. You can have two, three, four color guys, but there should always be one play-by-play -play guy. It's the funnel through who everything gets, you know, quarterback through. Mm. What do you think is required of the, the job skill to move through it and, and develop your craft? And what I mean by that is, is a few things. You become known for now catchphrases, but as well, I don't think a lot of people realize, just in a conversational sense, the skill that's required to sit back, actually listen to someone speak, try not to wait to talk. Um, does any of that come into effect when you have multiple people in terms of trying to, trying to be seen to run your play-by-play -play and at the same time making sure that there's a, a, a dynamic and flow in the conversation? Almost definitely. One of the really important things about commentating sports is chemistry. You're always going to be with a partner. I mean, the only couple of times I never really worked with a partner, strangely enough, was the Olympic Games uh, when I commentated in 2008 in Beijing and it was solo. So I was broadcasting for the ABU, um, 136 countries, 
242 fights in 11 days and doing right. it solo, which was a strange experience. But, you know, usually you're always with a partner or two. So chemistry is important in how you are able to get across your message, your bit of the action, and then allow your co-commentator to come in seamlessly without talking over the top of each other. It comes down to rhythm. It comes down to, um, to, to, to knowing audio cues as to when they'll come in. And it comes down to sometimes to personal touch. And I, I mean, with, with, with myself and Mitch Chilson, let's say um, on one championship, or myself in UFC Hall of Famer Pat Militich, who I used to commentate with on Access TV in America, uh, I just used to tap their leg under the table. You know, I, a lot of co-commentators, a lot of colour guys will go by the rhythm of your voice or your natural breaks in your voice. And when I started commentating with Mitch Chilson, he said one of the most difficult things was, I don't have a lot of natural breaks in my voice because I'll tend to take a small break to get my, my breath back and then I'll keep going. Whereas other commentators he had worked with would have that break and allow him to come in. Whereas that's not how I sort of operate. So he found it very hard. So with Mitch, what I did, and with Pat, what I did was when I'm ready for them to talk, I just you know, I give them a little tap usually on their leg under the table and they know where to take it. And then I wait for their natural break in, in rhythm of their conversation to come back to me. So really, it's just learning not to talk over each other, realizing the gaps, uh, knowing how to ebb and flow. So you've got some sort of tonality, you've got some sort of rhythm going. It's not all up here. It's not all down here. It's up and down, up and down pulling the audience in, capturing them, letting them go, pulling them back. And of course, mixed with storytelling. There's, there's so many elements when you're a commentator. And at the same time, people may not realize that while we're talking about the action, as it's happening live, not being able to make a mistake, because obviously you can see it. If we make a mistake, you know, if we say, hey, he's kicking off his left leg and it's his right leg, or, you know, he, he's, he's got the guy in guard and really the guy's in mount, you're going to know it straight away. You know, there's no hiding. It's not radio. This is TV broadcasting. At the same time, we've got a director in our ear and a producer in our ear telling us, hey, throw to commercial break, throw to replay. Let's look at that again. Um, throw in a, a sponsor's plug constantly. Let's go to a slow motion. Um, you, know, you guys need to pick up the pace. You guys need to slow it down. You guys need to reference this, reference that. So while we're talking and try doing this yourself at home, you know, try talking over five minutes of watching the football one night and at the same time have your child or your wife speak into your ear at the same time and then try and comply with their instructions while you're doing it live as a whole lot of elements that come into play. So it's a challenge, but I guess just, it's like, it's like anything that once you do it often enough, you just, it becomes second nature. And I think that the, the key to evolving is not to rest on your laurels, to always be trying to improve. And even though I've been commentating for more than 25 years, I'm always looking for ways I can improve my commentary. And if I look at it now as to even how I was commentating two or three years ago, I see the ways that I've you know, evolved and improved still. Mm. I, I do get told by, by the wife and kids when I'm watching sport, and it's, it's generally when are you going to turn that off? You know, if an AFL game goes for about three and a half hours, you got an hour of pregame, you got an hour of postgame. Um, when I had a last year, we had Rich Franklin on, who's who's a coworker of yours, and we we're talking about just how difficult it is to follow sports these days, especially within mixed martial arts, because you've got the undercard, the main card, you've got the pre-fight show, the post-fight show. Most organizations are putting out events every two weeks. There's about four or five major organizations globally. Like you could really sit around and just watch this stuff almost twenty-four-seven these days. Um, 
But I want to talk about that. Sort of your movement, uh, as you said, you, you had gone through uh, kickboxing and then into MMA. And uh, I want to ask you, I, I don't know if you're someone who has trained, but I know that with a lot of people move in, the ground game is very, very different. And I, having done both, I would say that grappling is a much deeper game. Did you find difficulties in adapting and learning how to commentate that sort of extra depth of a, of a fight? Most definitely. I, I, I've never commentated in, uh, sorry, I've never trained in uh, mixed martial arts. You know, I trained for a few years in Muay Thai uh, just for you know, some self-defense and some fitness uh, under Mark Castanini, who was my original ver you know, verbal sparring partner on Fox Sports. I was actually Hammer's uh, first student back in, right. man, 94, 95. Because he uh, still has that gym big... down there, doesn't he? Well, yeah, his gym now is one of the biggest gyms in Australia. And he started out with training me in his garage, you know, all those years ago. Um, when it came to commentating mixed martial arts, uh, you know, the first one I ever did, I believe was 96, I think it was, when Cage Combat was in Sydney. Um, Elvis Sinisic, Chris Hazeman, Mario Sperry, uh, Vernon Tiger White were all on that tremendous card. And I only watched it again recently for the first time in, man, it must have been over 20 years, and realizing all the mistakes that I made, um, not knowing a lot of the techniques. But as time went on, I, I would try and school myself and learn the techniques and watch videos of UFC and Pancrase and Pride and listen to the commentators and go, okay, that's what that is. That's what that is. That's how you move from here to there. And, and to be honest with you, Jesse, I, I still don't know all the moves. I, I really don't. When it comes to stand-up, I'm, I'm cool. I'll know every move there is. Boxing, kickboxing, Muay Thai, karate, it's not a problem. But the ground game, I still don't know every move, every transition. But that's why I have a co-commentator. And that's where the art comes into relying on your co-commentator. Because when I don't know what to say, the intricacies of the ground game, I can rest and let Mitch take over and he knows. Or let Pat Militich take over as I was in the US and let him do it. So that's where you develop that chemistry is knowing each other's strengths and weaknesses and how you can take those and mold them together to become a, a team. But yeah, you know, admittedly, I'm, I'm still studying every single day on techniques. And when it's, when it's a grappling match, you know, it's only grappling and one <laughs> championship has had grappling only matches. Yes. You've got high level guys like a Shinya Aoki versus a Gary Tonin or a Marek Gafarov, then it's a whole different kettle of fish. Mm. So I've just got to make sure that I'm, you know, I'm bringing the excitement and bringing as much as I can, but also not overextending, not pretending I know something that I don't. Because as you find out pretty quickly, uh, the fans at home, especially the hardcores, can, you know, they're pretty wise. They can pick you out really quickly and go, well, he's BSing right now. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, it was, I have this conversation quite, quite frequently. I mean, I, I still think striking with a little bit of wrestling is the most deadly combination that you can have. But jujitsu because it's just entanglements, is it, it will continue to be a never-ending, never evolving game. There's always new moves, uh, as opposed to a lot of martial arts. You know, Bruce Lee, a kick is just a kick, a punch is just a punch. But in grappling, you can constantly find yourself in new entanglements. And there's, you know, at, at, uh, at ADCC and these sorts of Naga and these comps, there's always, every couple of years, there's like new moves being pulled out of the blue that you have to uh, learn to, to adapt to. It's, um, it's, it's quite interesting. No doubt. I mean, even in mixed martial arts, you look at the grappling, the BJJ of, you know, 93 when UFC started and you had Hoist Gracie. Mm. And at the time, it was like, whoa, what is this BJJ? We've never seen this. This guy's tapping out, you know, 300-pound monsters, um, you know, tying up their legs and getting them in mount and in guard and wrapping up their arms and what's going on? 
But you can't compare that in 93 to, let's say, a Gary Tonin of today and what Gary <laughs> Tonin's capable of. You yes. know, the level is just, as you said, it's constantly evolving. Whereas the striking probably hasn't evolved as much because it's much more simplistic. Really, in you know, Muay Thai, you've got eight weapons and you're using those eight weapons. Sure, how you use them, the flow, you evolve as a, personally as a fighter. But the art overall, as you know, evolving into, in, into Muay Thai or into kickboxing, isn't going to really progress that much. Guys, from, guys who are pure kickboxers and Muay Thai fighters from 93, let's say, could still hang today with the mm. kickboxers and Muay Thai fighters. Whereas a purely BJJ come MMA guy of 93, I don't think could hang with a BJJ MMA breed of, you know, 2020. It's, it's, a, it's a whole different animal. Yeah, absolutely not. I, I completely agree with you. Um, well, let's, let's talk about the move into that. And we'll, we'll talk about, I guess, because you would have been around watching MMA grow and develop. But um, as I said, where I, where I initially started hearing your voice most regularly is on K1 commentary. So let's talk about how the approach, how they came to you. We'll talk about some of your, your time with the organization and, and as I said, some of those, those golden fights of the age. K1 was an interesting one. You know, K1 was always the epitome of the kickboxing world. When K1 was alive, and I'm talking those great years between, you know, 97 and uh, 2011, but even 97 through to like 2006, let's say, 2007, it was just really huge. It was the biggest thing on the planet. You know, it was, it was, it was the Everest of kickboxing. And it was somewhere that I wanted to get to, wanted to do, but never got a look in. And then one day what happened was I'd commentated some K1 Oceania events locally for Fox Sports. And um, the promoter out of New Zealand, a guy called Dixon McIver, who was also the manager of Ray Seppo and Mark Hunt back in the day, um, had a contract on Sky TV New Zealand to broadcast K1. And of course, Mark and Ray were going to fight each other in K1 Fukuoka show in the year uh, 2001. And uh, they were using a commentator in New Zealand called Neil Walker. Neil's a very famous former newsreader, sports reporter, commentator. But what happened was Neil got sick. So Dixon gave me a call and said, hey, Michael, can you hop on a plane to Japan tomorrow, fly to Fukuoka and commentate K1 this weekend? Well, I jumped out of my skin, of, of course. They booked me a plane ticket. I was on the plane the next day, flying over to Fukuoka, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Sydney, Tokyo, Tokyo, switch airports to Haneda Airport, Haneda to Fukuoka. And a few days later, I was commentating K1 Fukuoka tournament, which had arguably the greatest K1 heavyweight fight of all time, Mark Hunt versus Ray Sefo. And um, after that, that was it. You know, uh, I, I continued commentating for Sky New Zealand. And later on, K1 was looking to have a new English commentator. And they said to Ray Sefo, um, this was a funny one. They said to Ray Sefo, hey, we really want that excitable guy from New Zealand. They thought I was a New Zealander. Okay. named Mike. <laughs> and so Ray said, oh, okay, you want, you want Mike Chevello? They're like, oh, no, I think his name's Mike Angove. Mike Angove was the co-commentator I'd commentated with. And Ray's like, I think you want Mike Chevello. And they're like, no, I think we want Mike Angove. And Ray's like, all right, well, here's Mike Angove's number. <laughs> so... <laughs> They hired Mike Angove to commentate an event. I believe it was in Seoul. And then K1's rang Ray after the event. They're like, hey, that Mike guy, that's not the voice of the guy that's super excited and over the top and yelling and screaming. And Ray's like, I, I told you it's Mike Chevello, not Mike Angove. Ring Mike Chevello. He's the guy you want. 
they rang me and then I became their official, you know, K1 English broadcaster and uh, was off and running doing all the shows and K1 Max and Dream and Dynamite. And that was, that were just great years. That, that was what it was all about. You had the best fighters in the world competing against each other on this circuit that was like a tennis circuit. They didn't care if they won or lost. There was no protecting records. One week, Ray Sefo would fight Mark Hunt. The next month, Ray Sefo would fight Peter Ertz. And then the next month, Peter Ertz would fight Jerome Labana. And then the next month, Labana would fight Remy Benjaski. And win or lose, afterwards, they go for, to Rapongi and have a beer together and have dinner together. But they beat the crap out of each other inside the ring. And they'd be mobbed by fans. There was nowhere we could go in Japan without being mobbed. We'd go to a restaurant with Ray. We'd be walking down the street with Ray and tens of fans would turn into hundreds of fans sprinting down the street just trying to get a hold of Ray. We'd have to duck into karaoke bars and duck into private buildings just to escape fans. You know, it was, it was lines around the corner. When we'd leave the stadium on the, on the official's bus afterwards, fans would chase the bus and be rapping on the window, begging for autographs, begging for Ray and Labanna and Houston Ertz and Bob Sapp and all those guys to sign their programs. You know, you get to the hotel no matter what hour of the morning or hour of the evening or during the day or after breakfast or lunch or dinner, there'd be fans in the lobby. There were groupies in the lobby. That was just, it was, they were rock stars. The guys were rock stars. It was huge. It was a huge rating show on Fuji TV in Japan. Massive ratings on networks around the world, including on, on TVNZ where we outrate the rugby in New Zealand. I mean, really? that's saying something to outrate the rugby. Um, K1 was just, it was enormous back then. There was nothing bigger. It was, it was bigger than UFC. It was, it was bigger than anything. Uh, talking about Bob Sapp, when you mentioned him, um, I think as I mentioned last interview I did that, that we went live with was, was Peter Graham. He was talking about the popularity of him over Japan. Because I, I, I predominantly remember him for those two fights against Ernesto Hoos before he went on to become a bit of a, a journeyman at, after the fact. Graham was telling me that he had about a thousand sponsorships or more that he was only ma he was getting huge paydays in the fight organization, but his popularity overall just in other co-op partnerships was astounding. Like he was, he was bigger than Godzilla at the time in Japan. Bob was, Bob was, yeah, Peter's right. Bob was amazing. He was huge. I mean, he had those two wins over Ernesto Houston. The, the interesting thing is I've heard rumours over the years that they were rigged, that Ernesto took a fall uh, against Bob because Ernesto Hoost, you know, four-time K1 champion or at the time three-time K1 champion, um, arguably one of the greatest ever. How do you lose to a former NFL footballer, you know, and a pro wrestler? How do you do that twice? But I saw Ernesto in Vietnam last year and Ernesto and I are still mates and I said, mate, you, you've, got to, you've got to tell me, just... Honestly, tell me, you and Bob, was it rigged? Because I've, I've heard these stories over the years. He's like, Michael, no. Uh, I was just, didn't fight well. You know, just mm. the way it worked out, I was overwhelmed. And Bob was just so, so big and, and different and awkward that, you know, he, Bob, Bob catapulted to major fame after that. And he had a record deal. You know, he put out a CD. It, 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 was, um, it looked like the, uh, one of the Michael Jackson thriller the cover of the CD, I remember, looked like Michael Jackson Thriller. And it was a huge recording star. TV ads, you know, for noodles and cars and all these different things he was advertising in Japan. He was the biggest spokesperson in Japan at that time. Um, a thousand sponsorships? Maybe. I know there were dozens of them. Very lucrative ones. 
And so I think that while Bob was spending so much time making money through sponsorships, uh, he didn't dedicate as much time later on to fighting. I mean, he, he didn't train hard and he was getting beaten and he was, you know, taking liver kicks and taking a couple of rib kicks and going down and crying and riding I re- around. I recognise those fights later on, you yes. Know, he became a sad, a sad parody, you know, just a, a sad figure, Bob. Um, tremendously smart guy. Bob, you talk to Bob on another level. Tremendously smart. IQ off the charts. Um, but Bob did what Bob did. He was smart about it. He came in, he cashed in, made money, made a reputation. Could never have made that money pro wrestling. Could never have made it in football, you know, the way he did in such a short amount of time. And good luck to him. Um, you know, Bob was massive. Give us an idea about that. You, you talked about pay. I think we know in the UFC, the undercard guys, up until probably about five or 10 years ago, we're only getting a couple grand per fight. There's still guys that are sort of making that. In the UFC as a private organization, we know that there's a lot of deals being done where headliners making maybe 150, 300, 550, then plus bonus and pay-per-view shares. What sort of income were the, the main guys making in K1 around that time? Yeah, so... Um, I won't name names, but I do know how much some of them were getting paid. Let's say for superstar name, upper echelon, top level, um, 400,000 US a fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in the year 2006. So you're going 14, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, 400,000 US is quite a bit of money. Um, fighting three by three minute rounds, K1. So that's quite a bit. Uh, you know, winner's paycheck was around $400,000, I believe, which was almost equating to about Aussie 1 million, I think, when Mark Hunt won it in 2001. Right. Um, you know, he, he factored in the exchange rate back then. So if, you, if you're one of the top guys, there was good money to be made. Um, I remember being at Sam Greco's gym, uh, interviewing Sam, uh, maybe back in. 97 when he signed with K1 and I remember Sam showing me his contract and I won't say how much Sam was getting but he's like hey have a look how much I'm getting from K1 I'm like well that's that's good money they're looking after you mm-hmm. you know K1 looked after their athletes pay wise if you were marketable if you put in the effort if the fans could embrace you you know that was a thing and sure the, the lesser guys weren't anywhere getting anywhere near that but the opportunity was there you'd start as a lesser guy and, and work your way up, uh, unless you were a freak like Bob Sapp who, who came in, you know, with, with this complete package and, and then you had to, you know, put up the, the, the performances inside the ring. But, yeah, you know, $400,000, $300,000, $250,000 was not unheard of back then. Um, in Pride, the same. A lot of guys were getting big money back in Pride. Uh, one of the hard things was, though, that you had a lot of different influences back then, um, behind the scenes I won't say in K1 I never saw it and I'm only saying of pride I heard the stories from several people the Yakuza involvement back then you know the organised crime involvement behind the scenes that a lot of guys were getting paid in cash backstage you know they'd have a fight go backstage and there'd be a you know a couple of characters there be like "All right, here's your money and it's like how the hell am I going to take a couple of hundred thousand dollars (laughs) back home on an airplane with me. You know, so I know some guys that would bring 10, 15 mates with them 
Just and give them 10 grand guys, each. Hey, right? Yeah, give them 10 yeah. grand each. So you're traveling 10 grand. I've got to bring back 150 grand into Australia or 200 grand into America or wherever it may be. I'm bringing an entourage of 20 guys and you get 10 grand each because that's the limit. Take it back with you when yeah. we go through customs. I mean, that's how it was back then. You know, I've, I've heard these stories from very big name pride guys and some K1 guys that that's how it was. This part is pretty well known. We might as well continue to talk about the, about um, organized crime in Japan and their involvement in this sport. Were you aware of it before they hired you on or what is the relationship? Because from what I've heard is that really that was the only way to get the sport off the ground. These were the connections who could immediately fund this from the outset and for for people who don't follow the history of it too much this ended up ultimately being the decline of pride is that when it went public over there and then mainstream television from my understanding didn't want to be associated with this so what what was the involvement of it at, at that time and i guess how deep their their hands were in the game it's hard to comment just because you hear the stories and i can only go from my personal view i never saw the involvement in k1 I think that it was a lot more behind Pride than it was K1. K1 had some very smart businessmen behind it. Master Ishii had a, a vision when he set up K1 in 1993, and his vision was to commercialise the sport of kickboxing to make it appeal for a television audience at a live gate. That was his dream. That was his aim. So he trimmed it down. Before that, kickboxing was all about 12 by 2-minute rounds. Okay, 12 by 2, sometimes 12 by 3. Master Ishii said none of that. 3 by 3, 5 by 3. That's it. That's all we're going to do. We're going to make it geared towards knockouts. Okay, we're going to limit the clinching. We're going to allow knees to happen. We're going to gear it towards knockouts because that's what fans want to see on TV and live audiences. And with that approach came the, came the, the television contracts through Fuji TV in Japan, which was massive, like being on you know, Channel 9 in Australia but obviously a you know, much, much bigger market. Mm. And so Mr. Ishii also brought in the entertainment factor, the big entrances and the Titan, you know, the jumbo screens and the, the pyrotechnics and the live orchestras playing walkout music and all this stuff, and waterfalls. And what, what WWE does now at WrestleMania, K1 was doing that back in 93, you know, uh, th th they were doing it for non-scripted sport back then. And this is what attracted live fans and audiences and making personalities out of the fighters. Um, so I never really saw the Yakuza that much plugged into K1. I did hear the stories about it in Pride. And obviously, you know, a lot of those stories have been confirmed over the years. I think it's with a lot of things over there in Japan and a lot of, a lot of combat sports around the world have always sadly had the stigma and the attachment of organized crime. You know, boxing for a long time had organized crime washing money, laundering money through boxing. What a way to do it, you know? Um, well, I was going to say, when I moved out here for the first, between like 2004 to 2009, it's like every kickboxing matchup on the Gold Coast seemed to result in a bikey shootout or something. I was, I was blown away when I first moved over here about what the activity was with organized crime and bikey showing up to these events. It was sad, you know, there were shootings at, at events and, you know, up, at, up there in Queensland and you'd have rival bikey factions coming to the events and some would have to sit over here and some would have to sit over there and they had to separate them. There's a big police presence, but no reflection on the sport though, you know, that had nothing to do with the sport. 
these bikies weren't pulling strings. They weren't manipulating results. Those guys that were the stars of those shows, and they were amazing athletes like Nathan Corbett and John Wayne Parr and Bruce the Preacher McPhee and Soren Monkongton and you know, Eli Madigan and the names go on and on. They were brilliant superstar athletes who you know, didn't pay attention to that. It was just about what was happening inside the ring. And we were able to give them platform on, on Fox Sports and through International Kickboxer Magazine, etc., and to, to, to do that, and you know, what those, those, those underworld um, identities were, were doing, I think they were doing more for their own, for their own egos. You know, they'll come to shows to say, hey, I'm, I'm here and you're there and I'll sit here and I'll steer you at you from over there. But, man, the rest of the 5,000 people that they were getting at those shows weren't affected by that. You know, these people wanted to play their own, their own little, little games. So be it. It's a good segue. We'll come back to the K1 stuff. but um. Australia seems to have a, a, a real depth of talent when it comes to the combat sports. Boxing is obviously at the top of that chain in a lot of countries, but uh, myself and you would, would recognize, why don't you think Muay Thai or kickboxing has been able to generate the popularity over here when it clearly has um, some of the top athletes? So, so there's, there's obviously the trainers and the, the fundamental springboard to create these athletes. Why don't you think the sport has been able to generate any more publicity down under? The million-dollar question, and it's not just down under; it's also in the U.S. I mean, mm. internet forums are just riddled with this same question: Why is Muay Thai and kickboxing not bigger in the U.S.? Every time there's declared one of the greatest MMA fights, one of the greatest UFC fights of all time, it's always one that features stand-up, mm. features two girls or two guys going toe-to-toe, banging the crap out of each other. It's glorified kickboxing in a cage. So, why not watch that stuff? As it is, why not watch kickboxing? Why, not, why is it lion fight bigger? Why wasn't glory mainstream? You know, why isn't one super series mainstream in the US? You know, we're, we're putting guys inside the one circle in four ounce gloves, the highest caliber Muay Thai and kickboxers in the world in one super series. Why is that not mainstream? Why are people not glued into that in their millions like they are mixed martial arts? You know, when they're giving you what you want, what you desire, they're giving you stand up in four ounce gloves. You know, they're giving you that action, nonstop action and high quality action. It's, it's, it's the million dollar question that's really hard to answer. Has there been an identity crisis? Yes. Um, I often, I said for years, I think calling the sport Muay Thai in some Western nations doesn't work. Mm. I mean, walk down the street and say to people, do you like Muay Thai? And it's like, what is that, a Thai food? You know, <laughs> yes. you like kickboxing. You know what kickboxing is, right? Do you like boxing? Do you like kickboxing? Do you like mixed martial arts? Most people say, do you like UFC? Because that's become synonymous with mixed martial arts. Yes. yes, people know what it is. You say what's Muay Thai, people don't know. So if you're using Muay Thai, there comes this whole having to educate people and the means to educate them, the, the, the mainstream means, the mainstream platforms are not there. You're not going to get on ESPN, you know, or on Sports Tonight or wherever it might be and educate people about Muay Thai, okay? Mm. So to me, that was already a big wall to progression was calling something Muay Thai. You know, if it's outside of Asia, if it's outside of Thailand in particular, it's hard. Yeah, you could call it Thai kickboxing. But again, it's like, hey, is this just a little niche sport that only do in Thailand? Am I really interested in that? I mean, it's a whole marketing thing too. I think if, if, if we would have just done kickboxing, and stuck with kickboxing and stuck with a rule set, 
not all these rule sets, man. It's become so confusing. There's kickboxing oriental rules, there's kickboxing American rules, there's kickboxing K1 rules, there's kickboxing above waist, below waist rules, you know, there's kickboxing glory rules, there's kickboxing one super series rules. There's so many rule sets that are being used. Need to consolidate to one rule set. I mean, if you watch boxing, you watch boxing. There's one yes. rule set. You watch mixed martial arts, there's really two rule sets. There's one used by the UFC. And there's one used by one championship, the global rule set, okay, where the rounds are, are differently and the judging's different. But the basic look of the thing is the same, okay? Whereas if you're watching a kickboxing slash Muay Thai show, it's going, okay, this fight is now under modified K1 rules. It's three by three minutes. What the hell is that? Modified K1. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Yes. How, do you mod- <laughs> how do you modify K1? K1 already was a modification of kickboxing. And a modification of Muay Thai. How are you modifying K1? So if you're, you're a general guy sitting at home, okay, with some mates, you want to watch some kickboxing because you like UFC, you're going to watch some kickboxing. Let's watch it. All right, three by three minute rounds, modified K1. The hell's that? All right, mm. so I'm allowed to knee, but I'm not allowed to hold. Or I can hold with one hand and knee. But as soon as I knee, I've got to let go of the one hand and retract my knee before I knee again. Yeah. It's just too confusing. You know, so I think a big, another big problem is just confusion. Too many sanctioning bodies, too much confusion over rules and too much butting your head up against the wall, uh, you know, of not being marketable enough by, by mislabeling the sport. And yes, the hardcores are going to say, well, it's Muay Thai and we're not mislabeling it. That's what it's called. But come on. Like I said, outside of, outside of the hardcores, no one knows what Muay Thai is. So, yeah. Ooh. Just before we move away from from Australia, you've you commentated for all these guys, sort of in in a pound for pound standing. Who do you think is your favorite over over the years? I'm just trying to. You've already mentioned John Wayne Parr, Longinides, Corbett, um, Mike Zambides hasn't been mentioned as well. Sam Greco's in that mix. Obviously, you've got Hunto, uh, but in terms of well, I guess Mark's more of a of a Kiwi as opposed to a Sydney sider now. But who do you sort of um, rank as as the guy from your time? Australia. Australia. Yes. It's hard not to go past Wayne Parr. Um, and he's under the banner now. He, he just got signed for, for one. He's getting a hip replacement. He's, signed he's coming for one. back. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, correct. He had his surgery a few weeks ago. It's gone very successfully. Um, he's signed for one. It's hard not to go past Wayne. It's hard not to go past Nathan Corbett uh, when you think Muay Thai. Mm. I think those two guys stand out from the pack. When you think kickboxing, it's hard not to go past Stan Longanides for being a, what was Stan, an eight-time or a 10-time world champion. Uh, and it's hard not to go past someone like Ian Jacobs. You know, Jacobs was an extraordinary talent. Um, holds the record for the fastest kickboxing knockout of all time, like six seconds over Stanley Mandex. Mm. Um, beat Stan's record over Dennis Alexio. So, you know, there are so many names. We could sit here all day naming them. But if you want the real standouts, I, I think in Muay Thai, it's going to be Wayne Parr and, and Nathan Corbett. And I think that in kickboxing, the one that comes to mind, you know, obviously Stan the Man uh, and, and, and Ian Jacobs. And, and Stan's other achievements, uh, you know, the only kickboxer in the Australian Sporting Hall of Fame. I mean, that's, that's okay. a huge mainstream recognition in itself. And Stan's the only guy that's done that. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a name known around the kickboxing world. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think probably those four guys. 
Okay. Uh, we'll get back to K1. Let's let's talk about when getting into it. A lot of people don't recognize we were talking about before we even turn this on, and I'm just one guy in a room, and I've been blown away by how much effort it takes to transition from going just audio to video. What's required to get a fight card up off the ground? Uh, a lot of things. First of all, money. Uh, I think money. If you, if you, I mean, anyone can put together a fight card. I can put together a fight card for you in an hour and email you. Go, hey, Jesse, here's my favorite fight card. Can you do it though? Mm. You know, it's, 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 it, 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 there's a difference between conception and and completion. It's like people that that you know say, oh, I've got a great idea for a, for a movie. Uh, my life should be a movie. Okay, cool. Can you do it? Can you make your life into a movie? Can you make your life into a in, into a, 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 a biofilm? You know. What do you need to do this? You need money, first of all. You know, money comes from sponsors, maybe generated from ticket sales, maybe generated especially from TV. That's the main source of money these days. So, so money is the thing you need, first of all. Second of all, you need access to, to athletes. You know, athletes that you can say, okay, I can match a card that people are going to want to see. And then you're going to see what your market's going to be for it. Are you going to do a local show? If you're going to do a local show in a, in a, in a local hall that holds 200 people, you're going to fill it with people from local gyms. So their families are going to come and the families paying the tickets and local sponsors are going to pay for the show. But if you're doing a one championship or you're doing a glory or you're doing a UFC or whatever it is, it's a whole different ball game because it's not one person behind it. There's a whole big, huge team behind this. You've got a matchmaker whose job is to be abreast of every single fighter under contract and every fighter not under contract who may be able to, you may be able to sign and say, hey, do they fit into my organization? At what weight can they compete? Who would I match them against? Then you've got a promoter and you've got marketing team, you've got sponsorship you know, sales team, and you've got television sales teams, and everyone is a giant cog coming together. So it's really hard to answer the question, how do you put together a fight card? Because if you're starting from the, 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 the very bottom, it's like first thing you have to think of is, is money. You can have a pipe in the, a, 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 a pie in the sky dream, but without any backing behind it or any game plan, it's just that. It's a, it's a, it's a fantasy fight card you can post on, on SureDog and get people to applaud, and, and that's about it. Okay. Um, K1 managed to do it. They, they ended up doing it through the, because they were on free to air over there, weren't they? So it was correct events with the availability to watch. K1 had started much earlier. I think uh, I think the origins of K1, I want to say 93, 94, around that period? 93. Uh, November, uh, November or June, 93. Yeah. 93, okay. I believe Pride starts popping around around 2001 is when they host the first event with uh, Takata versus Hickson. Um, in, in a smaller venue, that was done in, I think it was a co-promotion back then at the time between an organization called K, KRS-1 along with dream stage and then gradually sort of by the time we hit about pride five it seems to have exponentially gotten bigger what do you remember about these events taking place because there was a precursor there was valley tudo and i think was there was was it coliseum that was a couple of one-off events with hicks and prior to that yeah back then you would have had um you would have had pancrase as well was big in japan before that um, Pancrase had guys like Frank Shamrock, Bas yeah. Rutten, Guy Mezgar. Um, that was really a, a gateway for a lot of these guys becoming very popular. Uh, was another organization, Rings, I think was Rings was one. Rings Shooter would Chris have been Hazeman, around back then as well. Rings Shooter, Chris Hazeman was on those shows. 
Um, but the, it wasn't so considered that, a competitor threat at all to K1 at that point no, in time, was it? No, 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 not at all. K1 had no competitor threats back then. They didn't, mm. especially not in Japan. They just they, they didn't. And neither did Pride. You know, Pride and K1 were rivals. When K1 got into the mixed martial arts game, started doing Dynamite, did Dream, um, but later on Pride was, was gone anyway. Um, you know, but they didn't really have too many opponents because they had almost a lot of crossover audience, but also there was an audience for mixed martial arts, which was pride an audience for kickboxing. That was K one. And the similarities between the two, obviously the, the big productions, the big audiences, the the, 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 television contracts in Japan and around the world. And of course, signing the best fighters on the planet. I mean, pride had the best guys in MMA. K one had the best guys in, in kickboxing and making stars. That's the difference. Making stars mm. of these guys. That is a big part of the success that was K1 and that was Pride and is the success that is UFC right now and one championship is making stars. It's no, you won't get to that next level, and that upper echelon, that, 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 that stratosphere if you can't make stars out of your athletes. How do you okay? think that's done? You've got to, emotional, you've got to make an emotional connection between the fan and the athlete, if you so can't establish an story, yeah, it's storytelling. It's storytelling, basically storytelling. In K1, before we did a show, we'd meet with, I'd sit down with my director the day before and my producer. Director was a guy called Sasaki-san and my producer was uh, Dai-san. And they would say, we're going to sit down and go through the storylines of all the bouts, which was an interesting thing because you think, how can you have a storyline really? It's not scripted. I get in WWE and I've done pro wrestling. You know, I've commentated pro wrestling. You have a storyline you follow, but anything could happen. But they would say, okay, here's the story. The story is, let's make one up. Let's, let's say Jerome LeBanner versus Mark Hunt, okay? Jerome LeBanner is this wrecking ball, this monster, this machine who's been knocking everybody up. Mark Hunt is this nobody from New Zealand who Jerome LeBanner looks down on with his French arrogance. But that's because <laughs> Jerome expects Mark Hunt to be cannon fodder. Jerome LeBanner heard that Mark Hunt once got, knocked, got hit by a car and got up afterwards and brushed himself off and walked away. Okay? And so the Japanese press have been asking Mark Hunt, oh, do you think you'll knock out Jerome LeBanner or Jerome LeBanner is the hardest hitter in K1 history? He might knock you out. And Mark Hunt said, well... I got hit by a car and I got up. I don't think Jerome LeBanner hits harder than a car. So already you're starting to make up a storyline. You've got a good guy and a bad guy. And we were masters at doing that. I mean, let's take a, a huge example. Badahari Alistair Overeem. Okay. 2000 and what was it? Uh, 10, 11, the rivalry between them. So what we did here was we had Alistair come into K1 as an MMA guy. And here he was, the invader. It was almost like our own version of NWO invading WCW, okay? Alistair Overeem was the NWO, Hollywood Hogan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and uh, uh, Badahari was Goldberg, who was representing K1. That's how we, we, all, that's how we did it. I hosted the press conference. You know, I, I triggered this 
this storyline and it worked wonders. It was massive all around the world because people wanted to embrace a bad guy, wanted to embrace a good guy, a good guy who was fighting to defend their honor, them being K1 fans. That was Bada Hari. Even though Bada Hari was the real life bad boy, the real life villain, for that storyline, he was the good guy. He was our savior. He was our, our Superman. He was protecting us against the evil Alistair over him from the MMA world. So when Alistair knocked out Bada Hari at Dynamite, whoa, shock. MMA's better than K1. What are we going to do? We're going to get them to, to fight each other again. Okay? It's going to happen in the K1 Grand Prix. Here's the rematch we've all been waiting for. At the press conference, I talked to Bada. Let's make this storyline. How about you predict you're going to knock Alistair out? Sounds great. Let's do it. Bada gets up there on the podium with my coaxing. I predict that I'll knock out Alistair over and inside of one round, I'll stop him. Whoa, whole place goes bananas. On the night, on the TV, all the focus is on. Will Butter hurry, live up to his word? Will he stop Alistair over him, the unstoppable over him inside of one round? Lo and behold, he does it. Stops him inside of, you know, three knockdown rule or two knockdowns, whatever it was. Referee waves it off inside of one round. Catch a shot of us celebrating at ringside. Me and Mike Kogan and Ray Sefo in a very infamous moment. And people got very angry at that. Some people, because they're like, how can a commentator be doing high fives and cheering? Because <laughs> by the one, it was all part of the storyline. And it's what made that K1 so successful that year was that big storyline, that almost invasion over in MMA storyline. That then we could catapult other storylines. Yeah, you know, Kawajiri came to K1 Max and fought Masato and what, at the Budokan. Massive fight. Crazy TV ratings. And again, Kawajiri, MMA, Masato, K1, clashing with each other. So we could do this storyline. So getting back to your original question was, you've got to make that emotional connection with fans. You've got to have something to root for, something to cheer for, and really get invested into it. I, I mean, you know, UFC does it. We do it at one championship. The, 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 the boxing does it. You know, why else, would you, why else would you watch most of the big boxing fights if you weren't emotionally engaged, most people, are, most people, you're telling me that there were really a lot of people that bought, world record people that bought Mayweather versus McGregor because they thought they were going to see excellent boxing. They're going to sit there as connoisseurs and go, well, I'm going to see the greatest boxing display ever. No. They bought it because they were emotionally invested through the war of words between Connor and Floyd that had gone on this speaking tour across the US and wherever else they went and all the money and marketing invested behind it. And it was also that same angle. Could an MMA guy, a UFC champion, come to boxing against the greatest boxer in the world and beat him? I want to watch that. So let's talk about stories. crossover, guys. Um, so you Overeem's bounced back and forth, but... Uh, I would assume that you would agree with me that the biggest crossover star that we saw during that time period was Krokop, uh, who went from, um, unfortunately, and, and probably most bizarrely, never ended up uh, winning a title in K1 before he, he I think he won a Pride um, Openweight 2004 Grand Prix, if I'm not mistaken. What was sort of the reaction to him? He, he seems to immediately, when he jumps into the organization, become a superstar overnight. And then what was the reaction or was there one for him then jumping ship to pride? Uh, because I, I was generally not that familiar with him with K1 until he made the jump over. Then when he made pride, I think it was, I think it was only about six fights before he started, ended up 
Fedor, and every fight was just effectively a more brutal left kick to either the body or the head than the last. Yeah, Krokop was was an incredible athlete. Um, just to clarify, before any of the hardcores jump on us, I believe Krokop did become a K1 Grand Prix champion in a later version of K1. So it wasn't the original FEG K1. When, when I talk K1, and I'm the same as you, Jesse, I'll go from uh, 93 to 2011, because that was original K1, okay? okay. Other, uh, other variations of K1 came afterwards, and K1 still around now, but it's not the K1 it was back then. So, you know, I'm going from Branko Sikatik 93 to Alistair Overeem 2011 as the K1 champions, but Mirko, I think, won a, a later version. Anyway, he was not the first crossover star, of course. The first crossover star from kickboxing to MMA, really, the big one was Maurice Smith. Okay. Maurice Smith was an 11-year... I think undefeated 11 years as WKA heavyweight world champion. He beat Stan Longanides. He beat all the best during his time. He was this unstoppable, amazing kickboxing force. Then he went to UFC in the mid-90s and he became the UFC heavyweight champion. This very my, un- my time right, because so, the, when, right. we, were st- we still had to rent UFC from Blockbuster Video. So there was right, no international right. content coming in. But I certainly do remember the game plan where he beat Mark Coleman by letting him pound right. on him, I think, for, for I, can't, I can't even remember if they had, I don't even think that, I think it was 30 minute time limits and let Coleman beat on him for about 15 minutes before Coleman couldn't stand anymore and then just leg kicked him to death. And, and uh, Maurice was Shamrock a, a, was in his corner at that yeah. point in time as well. Yep, that's right. That's right. Maurice was a phenomenal athlete. And, uh, I'm disappointed Maurice doesn't get more credit these days for what he did. Um, You know, people are so... Well, he was the first guy to create the blueprint for how to beat the wrestler. He was the the very first guy to do it. He really was. And I I, I speak to Maurice many times, and Maurice would always say that kickboxing was harder than mixed martial arts. He goes, you take more punishment in kickboxing, especially to your legs. And I said, how do you deal with the ground guys? And he goes, simple. He goes... They go to ground with me, he goes, I punch him and I stand up. And that's what Maurice tried to do. Go to ground with Maurice, on his back even, he's going to punch you until he gets a chance to stand up. And when you stand up against Maurice, you're screwed because it's Maurice Smith, you know. Um, you go back to, to Crow Cop, uh, Major, you know, he was a, a runner-up in the K1 Grand Prix, was it 1999, if I remember correctly, runner-up to Ernesto Hoost. Never became a K1 champion back then, of course. Uh, switched over to Pride, became a major star in Pride, had some absolute wars, was known for those, you know, the, the, the famous left kick, um, switched over to UFC, experienced some success in UFC, but never achieved the highest echelon. Um, and I think he yeah, retired, Krokop. and then I think that's where he won the K1. I think he had an out-of-retirement fight where he might have fought Cepho when the, a few years after he had retired. Um, it was a he, tournament that he won, I yeah. think, somewhere in, in Eastern Europe. There was. I don't think it was against any of the, the prime major K1 stars, though. But, um, mm. you know, either way, it was a tournament that Mirko won. Phenomenal athlete. Um, a lot of people rate... I was reading Sherdog the other day, and there's like, who's the greatest kicker of all time? And people like Mirko Krokop, the greatest kicker. It's like, eh. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic kicker. But when people say of all time, if your knowledge only extends... UFC and kickboxing in the current time, you can't comment on who's the greatest kicker of all time. I'll argue with you that Stan Longanides was a better kicker than Mirko Krokop. I'll argue Andy Hoog was a better kicker than Mirko Krokop. I'll argue that a guy like, you know, 
Um, Bullard Cow is a better kicker than Mirko Krokop. You know, there's a lot of people that only go a very, very small amount of time that they, they judge who is the, the best at this and the best at that. One person said the greatest kicker of all time was Melvin Manoff. I mean, are you kidding me? The Melbourne, sorry, the hardest kicker of all time was Melvin Manoff. I had to laugh at that one. I mean, really? Melvin Manoff, the hardest kicker of all time? Close to one of the hardest punches in four-ounce gloves in mixed martial arts for sure, yeah. but hardest kicker? Come on. Um, there are so many variables, so many variables. But this is the beauty of being a fan of K1 and mixed martial arts, Jess, is that we can sit here and chat about this all day and debate. And it's, mm. isn't it beautiful? Because we, 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 you know, we can go back and watch like that DVD you've got up there and we can go watch, watch the old DVDs and go, look at this guy and look at that guy. And I didn't realise this guy was there. And how good is, is this watching a Labana or how good is watching a Sefo or a Hunt or a Sap or a Hoost or an Ertz or a Bonjaski or a Schultz or a Feitoza or a Philo or whoever it may be. And they all brought something unique to the table. Who do you, you know, I, I think at least from, from the outside looking, it seemed that Sap was the most popular guy simply because of his size. It, it, it was uh, almost uh, an Andre the Giant type character. Uh, but if we talk more about the long-term athletes on the roster of K1, who do you think were the most popular guys uh, who, who endeared themselves to the Japanese? Good question. Uh, while he was alive, Andy Hug. Hmm. No doubt Andy Hug. Uh, Andy sadly passed away. It was a car know, accident many years ago, wasn't it? No, no, it was leukemia. 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 Yeah. Uh, very short battle with leukemia, actually. Very sad, very short battle with leukemia. And Andy had won the K1 Grand Prix. Uh, amazing story. Andy was from Switzerland. I believe he was orphaned when he was young. Uh, was short, short guy, couldn't box. Was a Kokushin guy. You know, Kokushin aren't known for their boxing, known for their kicks. Mm. Was a karate guy. And when he started kickboxing, they, they said to him, a lot of people said, too short, can't box, going to lose. And when Andy started kickboxing, was, was, uh, you know, was great Kokushin, amazing Kokushin, but not great kickboxing, but he worked hard. His work ethic was phenomenal. He worked, he worked, he worked, he worked, and eventually became K1 champion. And he won the tournament against Mike Bernardo in the final by doing this extraordinary turn. Spinning gat kick to, to the, the shin. Thigh. thigh, was it? No, to oh. the thigh. Yeah, thigh, caught okay. his thigh. After that, everyone in the world started to try to do a spinning back kick to the thigh, copying Andy. But Andy did it. And he achieved the highest, you know, the highest peak, winning the K1 Grand Prix. Passed away far too early. Um, if you're he was talking for axe kicks famous... as well, wasn't he? Didn't he throw a lot of oh, axe? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Straight yeah. up. Axe kicks. Yeah. You know, axe kicks, you bring up and the heel bone comes down on the, on the collar or the bridge of the nose. Devastating kick. Spinning hook kicks, axe kicks, round kicks, Mwashi Getty, all those. Andy was phenomenal. Um, you talk about most popular outside of Bob Sapp, I will go um, Jerome Labana, off the charts popular Labana, off the charts. Ray Sefo, off the charts. Peter Ertz, off the charts. I would go, that would be the main three. Which year was it? I, I can't remember. Um... In, in the finals, somebody was injured and Peter Ertz was in the front row and they, I think they literally needed someone to come out and fight the final. And there were a pair no, of shorts waiting was, for that was, that uh, was, okay. I, I believe it was in Amsterdam. I believe that, oh, man, someone was, I think someone was meant to fight Bob. I think that someone, was. it might have been Ernesto. Was it Ernesto? Someone was meant to fight Bob. And for some reason, Bob didn't turn up, didn't get in the ring. Something like that happened backstage. 
and Peter Rich was there ringside and they put a pair of shorts on him and he went in and fought and went the distance. I think that's what happened. I, I, I believe it might have been in Amsterdam, not in Japan. It might have been in Amsterdam, but you, you're right. And mm. man, I love Peter Ertz. I, I saw Peter last year. He was at our uh, Tokyo show for one championship. A mate of mine for so long, the nicest guy, uh, if you can understand him because he, his voice sounds like a mix of Andre the Giant and Chewbacca. Um, <laughs> but Peter's just, he's the nicest, sweetest human being. So funny, always with a big, loud laugh. Um, and he, he was riotously popular. So, you know, him and Jerome LeBanner and Ray Seffo, I think, were the three most popular from that era. Mm. There, uh, I remember some of the K1 crossover fights. Um, you mentioned LeBanner. I remember Jerome LeBanner fighting Don Fry, one of my favorite fighters of all time, getting desperately outclassed in the difference in styles between them, getting <laughs> knocked out in the corner. But the... On the flip side, I remember Rampage, uh, Quentin Jackson moving across. I'm trying to remember who he... I think it was Alexander Schlemenko. Musashi. M Musashi. Oh, and he... I can't yeah. remember, but he yeah. ended up knocking out quite a number of guys who were supposed to be the reputable K1 fighters. What do you remember about that period of sort of these pride guys coming over and, and being able to legitimately hang with a, a lot of the guys in K1? It was weird, man, because I believe... And I'm wrecking my memory too. I believe Rampage came over and fought Musashi and beat Musashi. I, I think, if I remember. Maybe a second, a but shock. I definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's a shock because, you know, guys like this coming in, you know, like, and, and, and beating the guys you assume are the top K1 guys, like, how is this even happening? But there was a time there when the MMA guys were coming over and just, they were coming in with a different style. And the style was the K1 guys would, you know, wait for a little bit, find the opening, pick the opponents apart and systematically break them down. The MMA guys were coming in and just, big blows, you know, just flailing, flailing punches. And the K1 guys weren't used to it. So mm. there was a moment there, a time when the MMA guys were coming to K1 and having some success. Um, later on, though, the, the, you know, the, 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 the tide turned and the, the weight shifted back to the K1 guys. Like I said, Masato beating Kawajiri. Um, uh, it slips my mind to think of other examples right now. But it's, it's very similar to the way... K1 would bring former boxers in, you know, boxers, and they get beaten up by K1 guys. And it's mm. just, it, it was cool to watch. I mean, Julius Long, I believe, fought in K1 Hawaii back in 2007, 2006. I commentated that, and he got beaten up. And he was a former boxing, you know, very tall, six foot eight, nine boxing guy. Um, there was a Japanese boxing world champion at one of the Dynamite shows, or it might have been a Korean boxing world champion who fought Masato and got. He's butt handed to him inside of one or two rounds by Masato. There were a few boxers that came in um, that you know tried their luck, um, but uh, Francois Botha, you know, came to K one. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, he did. You know, he Francois, did both. He, he was he originally a kickboxer that I'm thinking of, or, or at least no, he, he, he knew how to adapt to it a lot more, a lot better. Yeah, uh, I remember he fought Ray Sefo in New Zealand at the K one Auckland show. Got beaten by Ray Sefo. Um, a lot of boxing guys came. You know, Mike Bernardo was originally a boxer who went to kickboxing. Right, he was probably okay. the biggest, most successful as from just pure boxer to kickboxer. Um, but there was a lot of crossover guys. They were always fun to watch. And I still like watching crossover guys come in uh, because at the end of the day, Jess, we want to know, don't we? We want to know which form of combat trumps the other. I mean, remember when James Tony came to UFC? I do. And fought Randy Couture? And Couture schooled him. And James Tony was no slouch. You know, James mm. Tony was a great boxer, but Rand, it was no match for Randy Couture. Absolutely got schooled. But then 
Brock Lesnar comes into UFC and within what, four fights or whatever it was, wins the mm. UFC heavyweight championship. I mean, Brock Lesnar was a great wrestler, you know, proper wrestler, NCAA, you know, Division One wrestler, All-American, whatever he was, and came in and schooled some of the, the, the UFC guys who we think, well, how can that happen? How can you be beating someone like Randy Couture? You know, how can you be beating someone like, like uh, you know, any, any of these guys that Brock was beating back then? How do, how do you do that? So crossovers present so many fun uh, storylines and fun debates amongst fans. I'm, I've always been a fan of them. I really have been. Uh, I want to ask you about some of your favorite fights. You know, the, the book goes through Sefo Hunt 1. I certainly remember that fight because there's still, um, you, you know, that fight is to K1 about dropping the hands is what Don Fry versus Takeyama is to pride where they just clinch up and, and throw rights. Um, the first uh, Bob Sapp, Ernesto, whose fight I remember because Sapp was just throwing him in the corner and just unloading on him. As you said, Hunt versus Banner 1, I think where he gets that uppercut against the ropes. What are sort of the, not only the big ones that you remember, I guess from an upset perspective, but what are the fights that you remember that, that set off the crowd or became sort of um, period changers in the sport and the game? Hunt Labena, it was number two, um, was a big game changer. So Hunt and Labena had fought once before, uh, I think in Osaka, and Labena had beaten Mark, if, if, if I remember correctly. Oh, man. Anyway, Hunt LeBanner, uh, quarterfinal, K1 Grand Prix 2001. I talk about it in the book, commentating it, was just changed the sport completely because Mark Hunt had only been kickboxing for a couple of years. Mark Hunt was a big guy from South Auckland who got into a scrap outside a pub one night and decked another guy. And a bouncer saw him and said, hey, dude, you've got a decent punch on you. Do you want to try your hand kickboxing in a couple of weeks? And Mark's like, eh, all right. A year or so <laughs> later, or two years later, Mark Hunt becomes K1 Oceania champion two-time. Mm. No martial arts pedigree. Never done karate, boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, nothing. Becomes K1 world champion by knocking out the guy who was the favorite, Jerome Labana, with a 17-punch <laughs> combination i mean that changed the sport that allowed the likes of the bob saps and everyone there it is born to fight great book i recommend it highly fantastic book but that allowed open the door up for guys like bob sap and other guys who thought you know what i've got a big punch i'm gonna go give it a crack it changed a, a, a lot of the way a lot of people thought because all of a sudden the traditionalists the guys like the hoosts and the and, and the and, and the Ertzers and the um you know the, the guys that came from that traditional background the sick teachers and those guys must have been looking at it going, how the hell did this guy Mark Hunt win? All he's got is a big, big punch, but it worked for him. Um, memorable fights, Zambides versus Charlid. It may arguably be the most watched online fight in kickboxing history. Uh, it was a crazy fight. The other uh, one was just unrelenting. Million. The pace is just, yeah, it's just bam, bam, bam. It was, it was yeah. in Korea. Uh, it's just, it, it was a crazy, crazy fight. Um, I really enjoyed that one. Um, Buwakau, when he got knocked out by uh, Sato, um, I think was a great one as well. Um, Buwakau versus Masato, 2007 at the Budokan was a great one I enjoyed. Uh, Hunt versus Sepo, obviously, 2001 was awesome. Oh, man, I've, I've done so many great K1 fights that, you know, they, they'll come to me at 2 o'clock in the morning when we're <laughs> off the air 
<laughs> There's so many of them. I mean, I, I think I've estimated in my career I've commentated something like 7,000 fights. And there's amongst them, you know, 75% or 80% of them would just be so rewatchable, but you, 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 you forget them to recall immediately. But off the top of my head, you know, Zambidis Charlie uh, probably tops it as one of the most exciting. I always felt really bad for him because every Zambides fight I've watched, he was he he even though he was a kickboxer, he would predominantly use his hands, and he had great hands, but he was always at a reach disadvantage the majority of the time. And I remember him losing an enormous amount of decisions because, you know, he he he'd slip in, then try to fight to the body, but it was always just just not quite at at the same length of a lot of guys. And I think if he funny if he thing all- about Mike was. Um, I remember meeting Mike for the first time in. So Stan discovered Mike in Greece, brought him down to Australia to fight on a Tarek Solak show against Baris Nazif. It might have been 99. I remember going to Stan's house, Stan's parents' house at the time, visiting Stan and interviewing him. And he goes, Chevello, I want to introduce you to my protege. He goes, This is the mini version of me. Mike, come down here. Mike came from downstairs and Zambides is like five foot nothing. Yes. Okay. Tiny little bald dude. I'm like, really? I'm thinking this is the next, this is you, this little guy. Yeah. What the hell? Sounds like this, this guy's going to be superstar, megastar. He's the next to me. He does it. He's got a leaping left hook, leg kicks. He's ferocious like me. You watch. Anyway, Mike goes and fights Barris Nezef and knocks out Barris in the 11th round, if I remember. And all of a sudden, whoa, the Mike Zambides phenomenon in Australia began and Mike just blew up. It was the same reaction I had to Mark Hunt. You know, I first saw Mark Hunt, I believe, also in 1999. He was managed by Lucy Tui back then. Mm. And Lucy came to me and said, Michael, I want you to meet, meet my new guy called Mark Hunt. All right, Lucy. So I remember Hammer and I went backstage at the Crown Casino and there was this Polynesian dude, big paluka, sitting there listening to a Walkman at the time, no expression, and Lucy's like, oh, hey, meet Mark Hunt. And he's just like, uh, you know. <laughs> uh. And I remember saying to Hammer, I go, this guy here, I go, he's just going to be cannon fodder. I think he was fighting Chris Hoppolides or someone. Like, yep. He's going to get beaten up, man. He looks fat, overweight, no personality, sitting there, not even warming up, not even getting a sweat. That was the, Mark Hunt after that blew up, you know. You can't judge a book by its cover. Uh, two years later, Mark Hunt was the greatest kickboxer on the planet, the most rich, the richest kickboxer on the planet, winning the biggest prize purse. I mean, who would have thunk it? You know, uh, Mike Zambides went on to knock out Gurkhan Ozkan, uh, you know, went out to beat, beat so many great opponents over the years. Who, who would have thunk it looking at him? It's amazing just the amount of characters and, you know, sometimes you see guys that look the part and they just don't perform. And sometimes you see guys that don't look the part and they blow you away. What do you remember? Now, I, I'm bringing this up because uh, um, I remember this a, a few days ago. There, Online, at least in Australia, I don't know if it's global news, but there's a whole bunch of information about Mike Tyson training to come out of retirement and box again. Not only is the guy 53, but what blows me away is all the training clips he's in Vegas. So he's training with Rafael Cordero with, in all these clips, which fight fans would recognize as, as the founder, founder, I believe, of Shootabox, who trained um, Vandalay Silva, uh, Shogun Hu, and all, and all these guys. So first of all, he's not even training with a boxing coach. He's training with a, a Muay Thai guy. His name is attached to all of these rugby league guys. But where I'm segueing this to is during a period of time, the 
popularity of K1 seemed to die down. And then out of nowhere, and I remember there was a lot of, uh, I believe there was a lot of publicity around this in Blitz as well. In Vegas, they announced that they had signed Mike Tyson and that he would be fighting Bob Sapp at some point. And that was the last I ever heard about it. Yeah, so what happened there was, I think it might have been, man, was it 2003, four or five, somewhere around there. And you were right, in Las, Las Vegas, Bob was in the ring, Mike got in the ring, push and shove. They were going to fight each other. It was never going to happen. Uh, I think that they paid Mike quite a substantial amount for the publicity because once he got in that, that push and shove game with Bob and all the security guards, you'll find footage of it on, on YouTube. The publicity that K1 garnered off that in America was intense. <clears throat> Unfortunately, they couldn't continue it and they didn't capitalize on it. Um, it was just one of those things. You bring Mike Tyson in, you get the publicity. WWE did it in, was it 98? Oh, they do a Floyd Mayweather. They bring in a whole bunch yeah. of guys every year for WrestleMania. But Vince McMahon did it the best. Vince McMahon did it the best. He, he, it was during the time when WCW was really starting to, you know, Nitro was really getting the figures over Raw. Um, WCW was, was, you know, was, was getting more publicity, more attention, more eyes uh, than WWE or WWF back then. And so what does Vince McMahon do? Pays Mike Tyson, who, who wasn't boxing at the time, he was suspended, I believe, pays him an exorbitant amount of money to be in WWE for a few months develop a rivalry with Stone Cold Steve Austin and then, of course, become the, the guest referee in force or whatever he was when Austin fought heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels and, of course, turn against Michaels at the end and sock Michaels on pay-per-view. It was the biggest pay-per-view of the time. It was huge for WWE and it helped put them back towards the top. So WWE had done it successfully. K1 tried to do the same through their version of WWE, Bob Sapp, but couldn't capitalise on it. Now we're seeing Mike training footage of him training. A lot of people, the thing that gets me, Jesse, is a lot of people are tweeting, oh, look at Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, that poster just pops off there. Don't you hate that? Let me fix that up. <laughs> Mike Tyson going back to his very best. Mike Tyson at 53 years old, looking sharper than ever. Mike Tyson ready for the ring. Oh, Mike Tyson would beat Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. I'm like, oh, this really? is silly. Silly chat, hey? You've seen, you've seen 30 seconds of Mike not even. You've seen 15 seconds of Mike Tyson punching pads with some guy at the gym. Okay? 15 seconds of Mike Tyson hitting pads. And all of a sudden, you're going to throw him against Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder. You're going to put him against Vitor Belfort. You're going to put him against anyone in the UFC. Mike Tyson going to come back, bare-knuckle boxing, beat everyone. Really? Of 15 seconds of footage? Man, you could put me in 15 seconds of footage. And make, you know, if, I, if, if, if the cameraman was a good enough job, I'd look like a Mike Tyson. You can't judge off that. Mike Tyson at 53 is not going to be the wrecking ball he was back of in the late not. 80s, early 90s. All right, he's not going to have the duration, not going to have the stamina, not going to have the cardio, not going to move like that. Can he still punch? Sure, he can still punch. Mm. Can he take a punch? Who knows? He's 53 years old, man. Yeah. Hasn't, he's been out of action for a long time. So people are kidding themselves when they're thinking, oh, Mike Tyson would come back. And blast you all. Look how fit he is at 53. Yeah, he's fit. There's a lot of fit 53-year-olds out there. Doesn't mean they can fight. Yeah, how many CrossFit champions, though? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, not saying, okay. I'm not saying Tyson's a CrossFit champion. He can fight. But you can't put him in a competitive fight now against Tyson Fury or Deontay Wilder and expect he's going to blitz them. I've seen 30 seconds of training footage. Come on. 
We, uh, we're quickly running out of time and we want to give you enough time to plug the work that you're doing with one. And, and uh, you know, for anyone that's listening over in North America, I don't think they realize just how big this organization is at the moment. But just, just to clarify for old fans like me, what, what was the actual demise of K1? We, we both, we're talking about the glory days of K1 and Pride. And then they just sort of, uh, like a lot of things, they just ended up in the dust. And there doesn't even seem to be, you know, uh, Pride ended up getting bought out by the UFC. So that content is still readily available. But from what I've seen, there doesn't seem to be any more supply outside of people that are, you know, illegally uploading clips of where you can actually get K1. So this, this tends to sit in the this memory is inter- This is interesting because I didn't know until recently, Jesse, that UFC Fight Pass has so many K1 shows on there. Does it? Okay. Right. Now, I, I've heard nothing about UFC buying the rights. I believe there's a little thing that says UFC doesn't own the rights to it. Don't quote me on that. But I have UFC Fight Pass. And I was going, I did, I, one day I just typed in K1 because I wanted to find, like, I, I think some footage of Mirko or might have been Maurice Smith or something. I was like, oh, all these shows I did for K1 over the years, they're on Fight Pass, the whole shows. So many of them. So. Just a heads up, all the old K1, all or most of them are on there, are on UFC Fight Pass. What happened? What was the demise of K1? Uh, I think mismanagement with money. K1 still owe, and then they're going to get paid, FEG, I should say, still owe a lot of people a lot of money. They still owe me money. Right. I never got paid for a lot of stuff towards the end. Ray Sefo, I know, was owned a fortune, still owed a fortune. Mm-hmm. So it's just mismanagement of money, badly managed money, losing money hand over foot. And, uh, you know, th- that was it. Just badly mismanaged money. And once the money goes, um, that's it. The, 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 the organization folds. And do you know much about what's happening over in Holland? Because it looks like Glory has gone bankrupt as well recently in the face of all this COVID. Oh, man. I, I read that. And then I read that they're in receivership. That it's a, it could be a sorting out period and they could come back. New ownership Listen, and administered uh, yet. I'm a kickboxing fan, man. I've commentated for Glory. I've hosted their pay-per-views. I like Glory. My favorite fighter in the world is signed with them, but a hurry, you know? Mm. I hope it goes well for Glory. I hope they get out of it because, you know, it's a better world when we've got big organizations. You know, you have Glory and one Super Series, two big kickboxing organizations. It's, it's great. Um, I hope that they can come back from it. I don't wish any business to go under, especially not due to, you know, COVID-19 and, you know, these horrible times we've been going through. But no, I don't know any more about Glory situation. I hope they can come through and come out the other end, you know, and, and restart. Um, it, it's, it's a shame that they, they never achieved um, their mainstream status. I, Glory, Glory ran interestingly behind the scenes. They spent a lot of money on a lot of stuff that they probably didn't need to, to be honest. When I did the Glory pay-per-view in Los Angeles years ago, Man, some of the stuff I saw that they were spending money on, all these makeup artists and hairstylists oh, yeah. and this and that for the ring girls. And I mean, really? Why? You know, just a lot of money they didn't need to spend. So I can't really comment too much on them. Uh, I, I hope it improves for them. But who knows? This, this climate especially, we just don't know. Okay. Before, before we get on to one, we'll only spend a few minutes because, again, you, you have other commitments. It's mentioned in your book and – from reading your book, you, you and I, uh, I, I think you might be a couple of years older than me, but we both grew up in that same sort of time period of, of 80s films and 80s WrestleMania that, that motivated us. Um, 
you probably were Hulkamania. I came a few years later, so I was Ultimate Warrior until finding out how sort of batshit crazy he was through it all. Um, <laughs> and Van Dam was the biggest guy. I think you, you mentioned No Retreat, No Surrender, which I definitely remember from 85, 86, I think. But, but to me, the uh, along with sort of Robocop, Predator, Bloodsport, well and beyond kickboxer, in my opinion, was the, the, the greatest martial arts film that led to like Street Fighter 2 and everything. And this came from a story named Frank Dukes, or Ducks, or however you want to pronounce his last name, who Van Damme then went on to work with on a film called The Quest. There is a lot of information floating online, including sites like Bullshito, that this guy was just full of it. There was no Kumite. Frank Ducks was not a good fighter, could not throw this 90-mile-per-hour round kick but again, we're talking about a, a, a time period where the, the fastest information you would have got probably was from a newspaper where they would not have reported this. What do you know about this situation? I know Frank. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Frank years ago on The Voice Versus, uh, my show in America. I still stay in contact with Frank Dukes. Uh, <clears throat> people say, okay, first of all, I would say make up your own mind. <clears throat> Go on YouTube type in The Voice versus Frank Dukes. It's my one-hour TV interview with the Frank Dukes, the guy that the movie Bloodsport was based on. Make up your own mind if you think that Frank is telling the truth or if Frank is not telling the truth about a lot of the things he talks about. Uh, I like Frank. I have all the time in the world for Frank. I think he's a great martial artist. I think the Kumite did happen. But what you're seeing in the movie Bloodsport is a dramatized Hollywood version of the Kumite. You're going to see back in the 70s, there was a lot of Kumite stuff happening. There's a lot of footage out there. Even the Gracies used to do it, man, where they get challenges come to their gym. Guys would walk into their gym on concrete floors and challenge the Gracies to throw down. And the Gracies would film it. You can see it on YouTube. It's basically what Kumite is. It's no rules. There were a lot of tournaments back then that were basically very limited rules. Guys from all styles would come to, you know, under an umbrella of a, a Kumite, a competition, and compete against each other. So to say that it didn't happen is ludicrous because if you know what the 1970s martial arts scene or the early 80s martial arts scene was like, of course these things happened. Didn't they happen where they were going to Hong Kong or wherever and, there was a guy called Chun Li or whatever his name was, killing people and Dim Muck and all that. According to Frank, those characters in the movie were based on real-life fighters in the Kumites he competed with. Bola Jung's character really did kill someone in the Kumite, but Frank will clarify. he say he didn't do it there and then like you see in the movie. He goes, the guy took such heavy shots that later on in the hospital, the guy actually passed away. So Bola Jung's character did actually kill someone in real life. Is the Dimmuck for... Yeah? Did the guy ringside actually steal his gold tooth? <laughs> that I don't know. Is the Dimmuck for real? Frank will tell you, yes, the Dimmuck's for real. Right. He will tell you that he can hit a spot on your body with a Dimmuck. And, and that's not that Frank Duke's talking. There's a lot of martial artists out there. George Dillman was a, fa- a famous one who believed Dimmuck. That's right. And he's gone into all this stuff right. yes there are points in the, i'll explain it it's not like hitting a brick and then the bottom brick explodes necessarily it's being able to put a pressure point on a person's body where it can impact them negatively and frank would say yes there's a part of your body i could jab i could thrust i could punch right now he goes and it's not going to kill you on the spot he goes but a few days time 
you're going to get pain there. And he goes, if, you go, if it goes untreated in a few weeks or whatever, you could really be hurt. It could possibly kill you. It could cut off blood flow. It could do internal organ damage, whatever it may be. I mean, you think about it that way. Denmark couldn't be that far removed from a liver shot, right? You take a liver shot in boxing, your hand digs up between the ninth and 10th ribs, impacts the vagus nerve. It's a, you're closing down the whole body. You can't move. That's a kickboxing, boxing version of Denmark, really. So a lot of this things are being exaggerated. We're going beyond my interest in whether or not blood sport actually happened and the, the legitimacy oh, of Frank Dukes. I'm only, I'm only saying because I know Frank, you know, and I've interviewed Frank and I've read Frank's books. There's a lot of things that maybe Frank is exaggerating, but a lot of things that are. But watch, watch the interview. And, you know, um, either way, Van Dam did an amazing job. I was with John Claude in March. He came out to Australia. I hosted right. an Australian speaking yeah. tour in March. And, you know, um, the, the movie everyone wanted to talk about when we are on stage asking questions about was still blood sport. Mm. Whatever way, whether it's fake or real, fact is blood sport did more for the martial arts than any other movie since Bruce Lee's days. And I'll say because it had a wider audience than, than Bruce Lee had because Bruce Lee came at a much earlier time, blood sport maybe opened up the martial arts for many, many, many more people. You know, and then, you know, followed by kickboxer, etc. But it was just a huge, huge turning point for, for martial arts. And to see martial arts in there like Muay Thai. You know, Muay yeah. Thai was in blood sport. Um, a guy called Paolo Tocha. I know Paolo for years. He still referees Muay Thai fights over in, in, in Lion Fight in California. Um, you know, he was a great actor in a lot of, you know, doing some good cameos on a lot of films. Good Muay Thai fighter in his own right, Paolo Tocha. Um, you know, um, genuine martial artists that were in that film that portrayed it very well okay um you're now with one championship for i think for a lot of people listening i, I mean that this is truly the competitor to the ufc now and i believe if i'm not mistaken it might actually be larger than the ufc in terms of ownership it's just that through a lot of um emerging economies in in asia it's the the uh, the the business case seems to be to use YouTube to get the viewership free to air. Uh, this is one of those, uh, what's the term that they use? Sleeping tiger, something along those lines, where I think over the next five to 10 years, we're really going to see something special. We, we've we've already seen the trade between um, Eddie Alvarez and Demetrius Johnson, along with Sage North, Northcutt, who was uh, pretty seriously hurt about a year or two ago in his fight. But I don't think a lot of people are aware of just how big this is going to be. Brandon Vera is another guy that, that I've forgotten. How did the opportunity present itself and, and what are you seeing happen in the organization over on this side of the earth? Um, so the opportunity, I was living in America working for Access TV and um, the executive producer of one championship, a guy called Bo, uh, who had worked for Access TV in America but was now based in Singapore. This is in 2017. Bo kept messaging me saying, we'd love you to come and commentate one championship show. Can you help us out? Can you help us out? And I was like, Bo, I'm busy with access. I, I can't do it. Um, you know, he, he'd ask and he'd ask and he'd ask. And eventually my, my contract with access was coming to an end or a time of renewal if I wanted to renew it. And so I said to Bo, hey, you know what? If you guys want me at one, make me an offer. They sent me an offer and I, I liked it and it gave me a chance to come home to Australia and to, you know, jump aboard one championship, the, the largest martial arts organization on the planet. And um, I haven't looked back since. So I started with them in 2017. Um, one championship is huge. It's massive. We're broadcasting over 150 countries. Um, our show last 
October from Tokyo was Nielsen rated at 81 million viewers worldwide. Uh, we've never done the pay-per-view model. It's television. It's free-to-air TV. Um, and also via the, the app and via YouTube, etc. Um, so the, the viewing figures are extraordinary. Uh, just a couple of months ago, Tubala, who's a data analyst company, released some figures showing that online, uh, online viewing for different sports, one championship was fourth most in the world. WWE was number one. Wow. NFL was number two. Uh, NBA was number three. One championship was number four. UFC was number five. EPL was in there. Um, Indian Premier League cricket was in there. UEFA was in there, etc. But we were number four in the world by quite quite a margin as well. Um, just to clarify, though, one championship. Never say they are competing with UFC. That's not their competition. One championship's competition for them is NFL. That's where they want to be. They don't see themselves as in competition with UFC. They see themselves as in competition with NFL. What NFL does that mean? May have, meaning that if NFL is the most watched sport on the planet, if NFL has 100 million right. viewers. So they don't okay, want to be the number one combat thing. They want to be the number one sport. Correct. Right. Chatri Sichitong, who is the head of one championship, the CEO and chairman, says that's what he aspires to get, to be the number one watched sport in the world. They're aspiring towards NFL levels, not towards UFC. UFC, Chatri has respect for the, for the organization, you know, but it's not like we've got to compete against them. We've got to up ourselves, compete with the Joneses, so to say. You know, we're competing against the NFLs. We're competing against the NBAs. We're competing for the viewerships of these big mainstream organizations like, like, like NFL. So that's, that's what they're looking towards. Um, and, you know, steadily they're getting there. And the figures in, in, in Asia are, are phenomenal. Um, countries you would never expect like Myanmar. Our figures in Myanmar are extraordinary. We, we're, we're almost sometimes afraid to tell the world how many people are watching us in Myanmar because you're going to think it's ridiculous. It's, it's said that one in every three people watching TV in Myanmar is watching one championship when Ong Lan Sung fights. In a country of 55 million people, that's a lot. That's like moon landing figures. It sounds ridiculous. And if you don't know about Myanmar, you don't know about Ong Lan Sung, you think, oh, yeah, Chevelo's full of crap. But, but no. I've been to Myanmar. I've seen how they react to Ong La. Not only the, 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 the people, but the military, the politicians, everyone wants to be around him. He is what Pelé is in Brazil. He is what Cristiano Ronaldo is in Portugal. He is what Sachin Tendulkar is in India. He is what Roger Federer is in Switzerland. He is that. But a whole lot more because an entire nation, he's their hope. He's their only world champion in anything. And politicians, the army, everyone from every walk of life, Buddhist monks, all want to be around him, all watch him, all celebrate him. It's, there's nothing else like it. So this is the big strength that one championship has, Jesse, is that it can build stars in these countries, a lot of these emerging countries. And I say emerging from mixed martial arts point of view as well, or from a sports view and point of view that they can build these localized stars into these mega stars. Guys like Edward Falayang in the Philippines, you know, Joshua Pasha in the Philippines, Brandon Vera, who was a decent enough star in the US, but since being with one championship and flying the Filipino flag because he's Filipino, massive. 
become a movie star. One of the biggest box office hit, buy bust it was called. Huge box office hit in the Philippines. Here's The Rock, the Dwayne Johnson of the Philippines. I mean, massive. And this is what one championship brings, the ability to be able to market these stars in these territories and just make them larger than life. What do you think is going to happen? Because I, I, I remember there was an interview with Dana White and he was talking about the, the concept of the ultimate fighter where he was saying, in theory, it would be great to have these competitions running around the globe at one time, almost like uh, entry gateways to K1 where you then have a championship. One seems to be able to look at doing this much more realistically. Compared to sort of where you started in the fight game in the 90s and where we are now, what do you think is going to happen over, over the next you know, 10 to 20 years in this game? It's a really good question. Uh, I think the big players will stay the big players. Uh, there'll always be the smaller regional promotions because you need them. They're the feeder leagues. You know, your LFAs, um, you know, your CFFCs, feeder leagues to the UFC. And there's a lot of feeder leagues as well that will, we are smaller organizations that will take talent from, um, you know, Pancrase, Shuto, et cetera. A lot of their guys are coming to one championship. So you'll always need the feeder leagues, the smaller organizations to feed the bigger organizations. But what it's really going to come down to in the future is going to be television. It's all going to come down to television and accessibility and viewing. Does, I think a big thing we're going to see in the future is going away from just TV being the most eyes to streaming. You know, oh, it's to, already to, is to that, getting, you know, it's, you know, it, it, especially one where we're focused so much on our app, on streaming, on social media. That's the way of the world to get one of these in your hands. You go around Asia. Okay. You go to Vietnam, you go to Myanmar, you go to the Philippines. We're doing all these countries. People aren't sitting at home watching TV to watch a, watch a one championship show. They're on their motorbikes. They're outside cafes, having a coffee. They're outside cafes, eating. They're walking around the street. They're sitting in parks, groups of mates doing this watching on their phone. That's mm. how they're consuming it. Cambodia, in Cambodia, <clears throat> our athletes, we're not shown on TV in Cambodia. The One app is huge in Cambodia. People watch the One app in Cambodia to watch the live shows. And when the athletes win, they go back to Cambodia, they're received at the airport. There's crowds en masse at the airport welcoming these guys back. There's people giving them money and giving them sponsorships of watching them on their phones, on the app. So I think that's going to be the big shift in the in now and into the near future is the accessibility of how we are going to consume mixed martial arts and, and the way it's going to be consumed. If you can't keep up with that, you'll, you'll die. And I don't believe the pay-per-view model is going to be able to keep up with that over the next 10 to 20 years. It's not going to go that way. People aren't going to continually fork out 70, 80 bucks for a pay-per-view. You know, there's going to be other ways to be able to consume it. Rather, in addition to that, what sort of additional growth do you think can happen is what I'm asking because it's, you've been around the sport. We've seen, I guess, the, the, the limitations on the audience for kickboxing. And for whatever reason, that was able to be bypassed by allowing MMA and putting them in a cage, which seems now to be the biggest sport. How much more penetration is really what I'm asking about? How, how big do you think this sport can really get? I think it can get bigger. If it's done smartly, I think UFC is doing a lot of smart things. And I think one championship is doing a lot of smart things. They're doing them differently, but they're doing smart things. I think the sport can get much bigger. I think there's room for it to get much bigger. We are saturated by a lot of product. That's for sure. So you've got to be able to, to uh, separate yourself from the, the, from the pack 
often, um, there is room to grow. But also, we're always going to see a, um, you want to call it a bastardization of sorts. You know, you've seen bare knuckle boxing mm. coming up now. The over thing the last that 18 months or so. blows my mind about bare knuckle boxing is it's bare knuckle boxing and they keep bringing in MMA guys, a lot of them with grappling backgrounds. I'm, I'm, why aren't you bringing back boxers to bare knuckle box? Look, I've watched a bit of it, Jesse. Am I a fan? It's messy. Mm. It's bloody. It's not a lot of techniques, not a wild swinging because guys are thinking bare knuckles. I'm going to crack the guy and knock him out or break a bone or something. It's, you know, it's it's not. I don't. I don't see that the way. But a lot of these bastardizations, a lot of these different things will come along. You know, years ago they tried medieval knife fighting. Did you see that? Oh, I have seen that. And the Russians All do right, this the, tag the team MMA. It's... Tag team MMA came in for a bit. I mean, it, you know, they had the obstacle course MMA tag team, which is the craziest stuff. Dudes in. jumping on each other from like a, a story right. high. It's it's um, nuts. The, the, the arm wrestling with the the kicking, oh the, the slapping and wrestling. yeah it's nuts what is that and now you that's see violence to me that that stuff is just violence as far as I'm concerned poster doesn't like so you know that stuff is just going to always be bastardizations of things that come in just to try for uh, twelve months eighteen months to be the new exciting crazy thing but those will all go to the wayside and and, and mixed martial arts will stay will it evolve any further maybe how much has it evolved over the last ten years has it evolved a lot fight wise I mean. You can just see guys get better. Mm. Wrestlers are going to wrestle better. JJ, BJJ guys are going to do it better, incorporate it better. Strikers are going to get incorporate the striking better in mixed martial arts. Your know, rule set. Sports all evolve. You know, it's, the evolution is going to continue. The market will continue to, to grow because there's a big market out there. And will it grow at the expense of other sports? You're going to see what other sports are going to fall, go lesser to allow MMA to, to grow more, you know? Mm. Will we see a falling away of soccer, baseball, basketball, uh, you know, football, and an increase of fight sports? Who knows? Will we see boxing make a big comeback? Boxing's already made strides recently. You know, they get good figures for uh, Golovkin fights, uh, Canelo fights, you know, uh, Mayweather, uh, uh, Manny still pulls in good figures. Fury Wilder pulls in great figures. Joshua Ruiz pulled in good figures. You know, so there's still boxing that people want to see when it's good boxing. Mm. There's room for everything if it's done well and you can capture that market. But that's a really good question and I don't think I'm prophetic enough to, <laughs> to see it. Um, well, look, I, I know that we've, we've pretty much run out of time to speak to you. So before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to add or, or I guess allude to before we, we say goodbye today? Mate, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It's not often I get to sit down and just rap about old K1 days especially and um, some good memories. And I hope people that you know, grew up enjoying K1 and local kickboxing and, and, and stuff can enjoy the stories of the book and read about the likes of Labana and Hunt and Sefo and, and all those guys and Peter Ertz and some of the crazy times and, and get a good insight into it. And you know, thank you for having me on the show. It's it's really nice to sit with an Aussie and chat about all this stuff as well. Sort and, of. And <laughs> um, anytime you know, anytime when I chat again, I'd love to come back on. It's been great. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jesse.